0: Hello, and welcome to the Science AAAS webinar, part of our series addressing important, timely, and sometimes controversial topics that impact us all, but with a particular focus on the sciences. For today's webinar, we make the statement in our title, you can't think outside the box if you're locked inside. Together with our fantastic in-studio panel, we're going to talk about how a diversity of perspectives in research laboratory. Uh, Finally, I'd like to thank Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series, now it gives me much pleasure to introduce today's panel. Uh, just to my left is Dr. Angela Byers-Winston, who comes to us from University of Wisconsin Madison, where she is a professor in the Department of Medicine, director of research and evaluation at the Center for Women's Health Research, associate director of the Collaborative Center for Health and for Health Equity and Faculty Director at the Center for the Improvement of Mentored Experiences in Research. Uh, next to Angela is Dr. John Freeman, who is Associate Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at New York University and Director of the Social Cognitive and Sciences Lab there. Uh, our third guest is Dr. Matthias Nielsen. He is Associate Professor at the Department of Sociology at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark having recently moved there from Aarhus University. Uh, Last, but certainly not least, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Charlene LeFauve from the National Institutes of Health, uh, just up the road from us uh, in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, where she is Senior Advisor to the NIH's Chief Officer for Scientific Workforce Diversity. Uh, Thank you all so much for being here in the studio today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, As we usually do with uh, these webinars, I'm gonna ask you each to just give us a city second or one minute introduction on who you are and what brings you to this event. So uh, Angela, let's start with you.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation <coughs> and the honor of being part of this panel. Uh, as Sean mentioned, I am a professor at UW and I am a counseling psychologist by training, which is relevant to the work that I do that's related to our topic today, specifically on uh, the psychology of career development and how race and ethnicity in particular, shape people's perceptions about what they can do in work, what they can't do, who should be a scientist, et cetera. And then I also am interested in what difference difference makes, how people navigate their in-group, out-group experiences, and how that relates to uh, mentorship, particularly in STEM fields. Uh, and I have a particular interest in and privilege to lead a team nationally looking at these issues relative to culturally aware mentorship training. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Angela. John?
2: Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm a a social neuroscientist uh, at New York University and my work focuses on uh, how the brain extracts uh, information from other people and stereotyping and unconscious bias uh, looking at the cognitive neural mechanisms that underlie those uh, and how these kinds of biases can lead to unintended impacts on behavior Um, and I've recently become very interested in Uh, STEM diversity issues as they pertain to LGBTQ individuals um, and of course how this intersects with gender and race as well. Um, But what we're seeing with sort of growing evidence is that LGBTQ individuals are less represented in STEM than expected and reporting negative workplace experiences and leaving STEM fields at a high rate despite showing clear interest in those fields, sort of mirroring what we're seeing with gender and race as well. And so I've been particularly interested in the role that federal data collection and having data available, just demographic data, um, in enabling the success of STEM diversity and inclusion efforts. And so I'm really excited to be part of this panel and honored uh, to be with these panelists to talk about these issues, thanks.
3: Thank you, John. Matthias. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm a sociologist by training and I've spent the most of my research career focusing on different processes of social stratification in science, but primarily issues of uh, new and persistent uh, challenges to gender equality in academia. Um, so, so, so that's a broad topic, but more recently I've been specifically interested in trying to understand how diversity in research and demographics relates to uh, broader types of diversity, diversity in research questions and methods and so on. So how we populate our organizations and how that kind of relates to the kind of knowledge we produce. Finally, I'm an expert for the European Commission for their um, gender um, and science expert group where we try to promote and support the integration of issues of gender and sex analysis broadly in the European research and innovation activities. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: Great, Matthias, thank you. Uh, Charlene?
4: Thank you, it's wonderful to be here as a member of the panel representing the National Institutes of Health. In particular, the Chief Officer for Scientific Workforce Diversity, Dr. Hannah Valentine, and Dr. Collins, who's made it a priority and a number one piece of our mission to increase workforce diversity with respect to scientific enterprise and scientists in general, and to ensure that we, in fact, address Uh, ways to cure medical diseases with the best, most creative, most innovative, and most capable workforce that must include diverse populations. I'm a clinical psychologist in terms of my professional training. I specialized in behavioral medicine. I was an NIH grantee um, focusing on behavior genetics research and a long time ago in my life and what I bring to the table today is a vision and an understanding of 22 years of federal experience and a commitment to the NIH strategic plan and our enterprise.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Charlene. And thanks again to all of you for being here. Um, so I'm going to jump right in. I, I want to start the webinar off by talking about how we <coughs> define diversity and the way we think about diversity. So. Um, what do we mean by you can't think outside the box if you're locked inside so i'd I'd like to get input from each of you but um i did want to mention this this reminds me of um a quote attributed to uh, psychologist um uh, jerome bruno who says uh, the fish will be the last to discover water and I, I, i think it's it's interesting from the 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 point of view that we often don't see what's going on around us we we are not aware of the things that are obvious to us. And I think this is often where our bias comes from. So I'd like to start off with John, since you you are in your work, um, are studying implicit bias in in many forms. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe you could talk about how how our perception of reality colors how we see the world and how we interact with it.
2: Mm -hmm. Happy to talk about that. Um, So the, uh, absolutely, I think, you know, uh, there's so much research on how, uh, you know, automatically accessed, Things like stereotypes, for example, or auto, you know, as soon as we encounter another person, things like stereotypes, things like attitudes, will get automatically activated outside our conscious control, and and a lot of research has shown how this then colors all aspects of subsequent interactions and biases. Of course, what's really relevant for us here are things like hiring decisions <clears throat> and things like the way that we judge someone's scientific ability, for example, mm-hmm. but also even subtle nonverbal behavior, also all sorts of things in terms of how we approach or avoid another person. And, um, you know, our work in particular looks at, in terms of my lab, looks at how stereotypes get represented in brain regions like the interior temporal lobe automatically when we encounter another person's face, for example, by, say, gender or race, and how that then can actually you know, potentially change behavior or change the kinds of judgments people make. Um, And so there's, uh, I think it's absolutely true that, you know, we have, it's important to recognize that we have these associations that we acquire from our culture. Um, These can automatically get activated and then color subsequent processing. The question then, I think, which we're going to obviously be talking about is, what do we do with that information? How can we potentially regulate it or how can we channel it in a different way? Um, or try to actually change the underlying associations. And just quickly, I mean, getting really at the idea, and you mentioned Brunner, and you know, getting at this idea of coloring the world. I mean, our work has really been looking at how this actually really changes the way that the visual system in the brain processes information. So our stereotypes, if we have a certain stereotypical expectation, um, it actually might change how we even visually process other people's faces, for example, to be more in line with those expectations. So really visual reality, even to that extent, can get sort of um, shaped by our own expectations, just to really highlight how um, ingrained these kinds of
0: expectations and stereotypes can be. Mm -hmm. Great, maybe Angela, I'll come to you next, just to talk about your work um, on mentoring. Um, So it's very important, obviously, for mentors um, to not have bias in the interaction with their students and and with their mentees. So what are, what are your observations around this? So
1: I think building on, you know, John's comment relating to the research that, you know, human demographic diversity is part of reality. So the mm-hmm. demographic diversity is not the issue, it's the associations we make with those differences or that diversity and then the assumptions that we make based on those um, uh, differences as well. And so what we've been particularly focused on in the research mentoring space is helping to make for our colleagues here in the basic sciences specifically helping to make the implicit explicit mm-hmm. to give them tools to bring the con- to conscious awareness that we all do these things we all have these shortcuts that we take to address diversity uh, in our environment as well as in the people we encounter and to be more deliberate and intentional in how they respond to and be aware of those associations that are made with diversity and differences. Because we know that um, from all the research I'm sure we'll get into this afternoon, that um, many of us are more likely to want to work with or teach or mentor people who are like us. Mm -hmm. So that people like me factor becomes a very important dynamic when we start talking about addressing diversity that in the mentoring space has to be called out. Um, Because we want to make sure that we, in a talent development perspective, focus on bringing the potential of all of our students to the surface, which means that mm-hmm. we have to be very aware of how we are mentoring students, especially who are not like us.
0: Mm-hmm. Just to, to touch on something that, that I noticed when I actually spent time at NIH um, as a postdoc is <coughs> there were certain labs that hired students from certain or, or postdocs from certain countries almost exclusively. So I mean that might be seen as maybe a positive, um, form of diversity. Um, but I just thought it was interesting that we might also have a perception say that a certain group works harder or is more intellectual or is better at math or something like that. Yeah, so that's,
1: that's a huge part of some of the training that we've been doing that's been uh, very privileged to be funded by NIH looking at these things systematically mm-hmm. uh, through the National Research Mentoring Network. Uh, and beginning to ba- bring the best evidence that we know from social science, from organizational psychology, uh, to bear when we start training folk to think about why does that happen, mm. right? under is not just something that happens um, passively, right. it's actively created. Right. And so in order to address the diversity in science and in the scientific workforce, we have to really unpack some of those dynamics. Why do certain labs get populated certain mm-hmm. ways?
0: Mm-hmm. So it, it, it is active, but we may be not always aware of the fact that we're doing it. Absolutely. Charlene, maybe I can come to you.
4: I was just glad that Angela mentioned the National Research Mentoring Network that NIH funds. I mean, along with our commitment and our broad mission, we have done very strategic and deliberate uh, things to make sure that we devote a research focus to get an evidence base to address things like mentoring and to use mentoring in a scientific way, in a strategic way to make sure that people who, along the career path, need support, get the support they need, and then are likely to sustain a career in biomedical research. And NRMN was launched in about January 2015. Angela probably knows this. It is part of our larger diversity uh, program consortium that was an investment of about $250 million Mm. that NIH devoted beginning in 2014. We're now in year five. And we have a number of outputs that have resulted from this investment, Um, in addition to another program that was a part of the diversity program consortium called BUILD, Mm -hmm. uh, Building Infrastructure Leading to Diversity, which was an investment in about 12 different sites that had about $7.5 million or less in research resources um, to ensure that the students at these sites undergraduate focus would have an opportunity to, um, and that, that the people at the sites would have an opportunity to test evidence-based, hypothesis-driven interventions to combat stereotyped threat, mm-hmm. which John just talked about, um, issues like microaggressions, um, entrepreneurship, all sorts of things. And we're getting results from those studies. Um, we're going to be focused on phase two where we now look at evidence that was robust in the first five years that might be scaled up and potentially implemented in a national way. Mm -hmm. So I'm just glad you brought that up and it piggybacks very nicely on John's comment about stereotype. Mm -hmm. And um, we're also at NIH doing a lot of work inside NIH. You commented on the intramural program Mm -hmm. and that you are a veteran of the intramural (laughs) program. And we use um, 11% of our NIH budget to actually have laboratory research at NIH. Mm -hmm. Most of the audience may know that. Um, But our investment also focuses on um, about 6,000 scientists who are doing research, about 1,000 principal investigators, Mm -hmm. all the resources they're in. But what we are doing as an office is looking at how we can increase workforce diversity within the intramural program, Mm -hmm. and strategically and deliberately bring in scientists, recruit scientists, inform search committees about tenure-track positions, tenure-eligible positions, Mm -hmm. and do implicit bias education with those search committees to ensure that they have an open mind and that they approach in a very standardized way, and that we mitigate implicit bias theoretically right from the beginning, right. so that we increase the pool of applicants coming into NIH. We're doing that now, but the idea is that NIH intramural is a test bed mm-hmm. for the larger national arena. And we hope that what we learn at NIH potentially will inform our broader programs, which is 80% of our budget, mm-hmm. $39.2 million, that goes to the extramural research community.
0: Thirty-nine point two billion, billion. Great. Okay. which is an increase. Yeah. Uh,
4: Congress has great. been very generous with NIH. Fantastic. Curing medical diseases yeah. is a universal goal yeah. for the American political infrastructure yeah. so
0: that's great you touched on a, a lot of really important things and I'm, I'm going to come back to some of them later in the discussion for sure um, let me just c- come to Matthias and see if you, if you have any thoughts on you know sort of this idea that um, of, of uh, how, do, how we can find awareness in our, our milieu that we, we live in
3: well well an important point I, w- I would like to start by addressing here related to the question of diversity is, is kind of emphasizing that while we know a lot about how the potential benefits of diversity with respect to how it can lead to creativity it can improve problem solving it mm-hmm. can um, it can improve collective intelligence in teams and stuff like that i think it's also much can be gained from thinking about this in a more systemic uh, perspective thinking about how, for instance, researcher demographics and diversity in researcher demographics in the research system kind of relates to the questions raised, topics uh, addressed Mm. and so on in scientific knowledge making. And and the basic argument there would be, I think that social norms and, and expectations to some extent can cultivate different perspective, different viewpoints in different, of, of, in people with from different backgrounds, and that can kind mm-hmm. of lead to a larger variations in the topics and perspectives addressed. And I can give one example from research I've been doing with colleagues in Denmark and the US, which showed that, um, that w- what we showed was a, a quite robust co- uh, relationship between women's participation in medical research teams and these medical research teams' uh, likelihood of integrating perspectives on gender and sex like focusing on variations related to gender and sex in their medical papers hmm. um, and this is important because physiological and behavioral variations um, between women and men have been shown to to play an important role in terms of diagnosing and, and treating diseases so I think that the main takeaway here to be drawn from this would be that of course we've been placing in the research on this issue a lot of emphasis on diversity in teams, and of course also very importantly on equal opportunities, on ensuring Mm -hmm. meritocratic principles and and fairness. But I think there's also a a question here to be be raised around uh, how diversity relates to the knowledge produced and how that knowledge represents a more general diverse society. So it's about uh, ensuring Mm -hmm. that we address uh, broader societal needs and expectations, so to say. Right.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I, I'm aware of some studies that have <coughs> even shown that uh, the majority of experiments done on laboratory animals are done on male animals, and that mm-hmm. those are often not mm-hmm. translatable to female mm-hmm. animals and then to female humans as well. So it goes all the way down. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I wanted to come to something that that Matthias um, sort of touched on, and that is, what do we mean by diversity? Um, mm-hmm. And the reason I bring this up is because we you know we're very aware of gender and racial diversity those are physical characteristics that are very difficult to hide but there's often other characteristics Um, people might be differently abled Um, LGBTQ issues that 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 John mentioned uh, multiple minorities so how do these sort of feed into what we're talking about Um, so Angela maybe you can start us off talking about that
1: well I'll start talking uh, in response to your question relative to Uh, two factors. One is what do we mean by diversity and so um, from a demographic perspective I'm most interested in those that are visible characteristics, things that are relatively recognizable when a person walks in the room Mm -hmm. because those are the things I'd love to hear John's research um, that stimulate and people react to very quickly. Um, And then of course those that are less visible in terms of one's um, affectional orientation or one's ability status, one's uh, neural diverse status for example. Um, And so uh, I'm specifically talking about demographic diversity that's uh, based on visible physical recognizable characteristics in the research that I've been doing. And the second piece I want to respond to is how those demographic differences show up in the ways that we've been finding our um, basic science colleagues respond to interventions around diversity awareness. And mm-hmm. so what we've been finding is that many of our colleagues who are basic scientists are more willing to talk about um, gender, for example, than they're talk- willing to talk about race. We published a couple of studies mm-hmm. based on qualitative data and quantitative data that there's a little bit more reticence and nervousness and dare I say fear to address issues of diversity when they come to race and ethnicity when you think about the hotbed topics just even as a society it's hard to have some of these Mm -hmm. conversations (laughs) around race and ethnicity in a civil way and so you add that piece into the scientific domain that uh, based on our research uh, we have a study in, in press now uh, results that show um, many of our colleagues in the physical and life sciences hold the constructs of diversity and science as two separate constructs, they don't mm. go together. And so I think it's an important piece when you ask the question, what do we mean by diverse, excuse me, diversity because it has implications for how we intervene and the first dynamic we're finding is that when we talk about demographic diversity, that is a hard nut to crack. Our colleagues in the bi- basic and physical sciences have been more willing to talk about intellectual diversity, <laughs> for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. Um, Discipline diversity. I'm in a multidisciplinary team, right? A cell and molecular biologist working with a biochemist has <laughs> diversity <laughs> for some folks. Right. Um, and so I think it's important to really get at what do we mean by diversity, and then its implications for how we
0: intervene. Mm-hmm. And I think coming to something that I think Matthias raised earlier is that um, different cultures might see diversity differently. Um, and how do you address that in different countries? So, I, I don't know, Matthias, do you, do you see diversity addressed
3: differently in Europe uh, relative to the US or other countries? Well, yeah, I do to some extent. What was always like, struck me is like in the European discussions on this, how li- little uh, ethnicity and race, how little uh, it's raised as an issue related to diversity. Mm-hmm. In the European Commission perspective, there's a lot of emphasis, for instance, on promoting gender equality, integrating perspectives on gender and so on. But race and ethnicity is still quite absent. And also mm-hmm. questions of um, social demographic differences and how these, these relate to some of these issues. I, I, I think uh, the, the discussion of diversity in Europe at least could improve. be improved a lot by starting to broaden the the, 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 the the kind of concepts we take into account and discuss when we think about this. Mm-hmm. So I wonder why is race such a, a, a hot issue
0: or you know a, a third rail that people maybe don't want to touch um, and maybe John I'll, I'll, I'll come to you on this because you I mean you do study um, where maybe someone is not aware of their bias when it comes to race, but obviously nobody wants to be called a racist mm-hmm. or be pointed out as, as um, you know, having some kind of racial bias.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think
2: the, well, I mean, going back a, a step just about diversity, I think a lot of these things, these uh, identities and uh, matter, and, and I think mm-hmm. it depends on the goal in terms of what we're talking about in terms of diversity and what are we trying to achieve in terms of um, you know, all the benefits that diversity can bring in terms of we can, are we trying to improve science, are we trying to create a more equitable society and equitable um, process in science? In terms of, you know, why is is race such an uh, such an issue, I think, and probably Matias can maybe attest to this, but there, it's quite culturally variant in terms of, in the United States, because of social norms, because of political discourse, I think race has become a, a very polarizing issue and something mm-hmm. that there's a strong desire to appear non-prejudicial. Things that, um, as your colleague, you know Patricia Devine, um, has looked at in terms of uh, you know motivations to control prejudice, right? And these sorts of things in terms of their strong motivations to not appear prejudiced um, to other people externally. And I think that's, in part, why in the U.S. race is maybe a kind of a, a polarizing issue. If that's what you're getting mm-hmm. at, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, as you put, I mean the. Um, the visible characteristics, I mean, race, gender are highly salient visual cues. And so they tend to spontaneously activate category representations and then stereotypes and related attitudes in the brain very quickly. Um, But it's also worth noting a lot of these other aspects that you're talking about, Sean, in terms of um, LGBTQ or disability or other things have, are, you might call them visually you know, inconspicuous or, mm-hmm. you know, they can have some degree of visual cues related to them. You're just not usually bringing the kind of certainty that you have with gender and race. And so, um, so, so I think that's in part why race is such a big issue is it's visually salient and also there's such an intense sort of set of social norms about being biased, you know, racially biased, I think much more than gender um, and the political discourse around it in the U.S.
4: Mm -hmm. I I, I agree with everything that's been shared and I would say that it's it's very difficult to ignore the history of structural inequities from what has happened in our country at least in the United States and Mm -hmm. then the experiences that upcoming scientists have that people who have a PhD who are navigating their career trying to finish a postdoc, trying to go from the postdoc to an independent career, who have experiences every day, maybe, or more than we would even realize, that might be related to their phenotypical presentation, um, (coughs) that probably are related to their phenotypical representation, and that may be a deterrent for them to commit to a career in biomedical research. Mm. So why is racial issues, why is racism a difficult topic? It's a difficult topic because it's emotionally laden Mm. and it stirs up a lot of discomfort amongst individuals, organizations and across the country when they reflect on their individual experiences that might be painful, when they reflect on the news at night um, and when they reflect on broader issues about multi generational pain. So I thought I would just throw that in there that there's the neuro, you know, the, the expertise and the cognitive piece that John brings, but there's this broader ecological context in which we all live that we have to consider that truly impacts diversity in the workforce. Mm-hmm.
1: And if I can just add to that, sure. I think the last two comments particularly stood out to me in terms of why are we doing this? Why are we even talking about diversity in the scientific workforce, whether it's in the U.S. or in other countries? And I think there's two things that, uh, that stand out to me. One is that we know that people like to be in environments where they fit. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> a basic kind of human desire, I think, that's across cultural contexts, across national, Context. So if we want to draw people into STEM, we want to draw them and retain them in these fields, there have to be environments that affirm, welcome, and appreciate those differences. And then the second piece is from the talent development perspective, going back to faculty mentors, to be aware that these are real dynamics. Many of the mm-hmm. colleagues I've encountered say, oh, you shouldn't let those things bother you just because someone made a uh, untoward remark in the lab perhaps that mm-hmm. had to do with one of your identities. Um, just let that work—you know roll off your back. Just do your work. It's just about the science. And mm-hmm. yet that person is now left with a sense of, did you really mean that about me? Do you not like me? Is there something about my presence here that's not as valuable as someone else's? Mm-hmm. Um, my contribution's not is valued and so just being aware that these are additional career development academic dynamics that many of our trainees have to um, navigate to be successful is also important for our mentors.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so I want to come back to um, the underlying mechanisms of implicit bias. And I know we've touched on this uh, a few times already, but I want to really sort of uh, stick a pen in it and, in, so that the audience understands where this comes from. Um, and this is not about blaming uh, somebody for being sexist or racist or, or you know whatever we want to, word we want to use. But I think it's it's helpful to understand why we do this, how our brains work. So obviously, I think, John, I, I'm gonna have you speak to this, but um, really talking about how these these biases manifest, um, how we can recognize them specifically, um, and also, we're gonna talk a little bit about interventions and, and elimination of, of the biases, so.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, um, as I said a bit earlier, I mean, there's tons of research looking at the mechanisms underlying implicit bias, and. It all points to, you know, we acquire, the brain like a sponge acquires all sorts of information, co-variations and certain kinds of things in the social environment. And it can um, pick up on these patterns in, in terms of watching the social world and can quickly pick up, you know, you see as early as six years of age where children start to show um, a bias or a kind of preference towards certain kinds of racial groups or certain kind or gender or other kinds of dimensions. Um, and even the sort of male tied to science, female tied to arts association emerges at six years of age on implicit measures. Mm-hmm. Um, so people acquire this very quickly um, and even across different cultures. Um, but the, and you know I, I think one perspective, the cognitive perspective that's helpful to think about is that if we think of stereotyping, for example, or implicit stereotyping, the fact that we automatically relate women to, or men to science and women to arts, that kind of association, or other kinds of associations, these are really, um, you know, the, like other kinds of things, like objects or other kinds of concepts, the brain will automatically activate these associations if you've learned that covariation, that kind of um, link. Uh, over time in your culture um, the question that really matters then is what do you do with that information and I think um, in terms of interventions or change where I think the kinds of interventions that I know Angela is doing another just sort of outside of STEM but just sort of basic gender and racial bias sort of implicit bias interventions it really the ones that seem to be effective seem to focus on raising people's awareness and and but then also a number of things like presenting you know individuals or exemplars that counter their stereotypes to give them perspective taking abilities to individuate and think about people not as a homogenous group but as an individual so there's lots of things to try to break down um, the the deleterious effects that those associations can have but it is important to recognize that we're all human and that like other aspects you know stereotyping really is sort of a product of cognitive categorization, Mm -hmm. which is we sort an impossibly complex world, social world, through the lens of these categories. And I don't think, the, and I think many would agree, the answer is not to erase the categories or, you know, a racially colorblind approach or to take, Mm -hmm. to pretend like we don't see this or sort the world in this way. We should appreciate and affirm those differences. And, and, um, you know, I think it's what you do with those associations, and how you try to, and how that affects behavior. That is really where the best kind of change can happen, in mm-hmm. my view.
0: And and not to to uh, not to say this is an excuse because oh my brain just works this way. Absolutely, and there's evidence to suggest that people,
2: um, you know, individuals, if you do sort of tell them about implicit bias, may sort of think that that they can just blame their implicit bias. But I, you know. To give you an example from our own work that might make it a little bit more, well, very realistic, we've been looking at, you know, we look a lot in my lab at how stereotypes unconsciously affect the way the visual system represents information. So, for example, in the context of a black individual, um, how an innocuous object might get misperceived in the visual system as a gun, Mm. right? Um, If that's the case, meaning, and especially in a split-second decision, that could lead to very consequential behavior. Um, Does that mean this individual or potentially police officer is not legally culpable? Absolutely not, right? And and getting at questions of culpability is obviously outside the scope of science Mm -hmm. and for legal scholars, but it's important to recognize you can, you know, it doesn't let you off the hook, um, but we have these implicit associations. They can influence behavior and we need to find ways to actually reduce or eliminate them. But it doesn't mean that we don't need to, we should be motivated to change and there's many steps of processing in the brain that occur from the initial activation of an association to behavior and i think that's where interventions really make a difference Mm -hmm. as well as kind of just quickly getting to your point in my view i mean the real change in associations have to come with structural inequalities that get fixed right i mean you can try to change people's associations in the lab but then it seems like the emerging evidence is that three to four days later they go back to baseline um, and so to really try to change the underlying associations, you need to change the cultural environment in which people are, you know, seeing, picking up on these things, in my personal mm-hmm.
0: view. <laughs> and, and I'd like to, I'm gonna come to Charlene right now, but I, I think I'm, it's, it's a good time to transition us towards the intervention side of the discussion, which I'd really like to talk about. And I know uh, both Charlene and Angela are very involved in that. So Charlene, do you have any thoughts on what John just said?
4: Absolutely. Uh, John, you covered a number of areas that Uh, are highly relevant to the current environment at NIH. Mm -hmm. We recognize that institutional change is where the emphasis should be prioritized, that focusing on individual attitude changes and individual change of the person receiving the unfair treatment um, has been fairly prioritized for quite a while now, but to have a broader impact, the (coughs) institutional culture must shift. Mm -hmm. And to do that, to to address complex problems, we must have complex answers. So, for example, at at NIH, uh, we established a NIH equity committee. Now, that equity committee comes together to examine issues of equity across NIH using an evidence-based and data-focused dialogue. How many uh, women are in your particular intramural scientific program? How many people from diverse backgrounds? What are the resources devoted to them? What is the plan to retain them long-term, to promote them? and have dialogue amongst the leadership about that. And then in that dialogue, issues come up um, that might challenge the implicit biases that might be occurring, that might challenge stereotypes. It also cultivates something around uh, group and social change, like how is this institute doing compared to my institute? And it could be an interesting competition, but it's also a learning community. And we know from our implementation and dissemination research that sometimes creating a learning community where people take a curiosity approach as opposed to a competitive approach can also create momentum for change. And then ultimately over time, you want to make sure, well, we also have to have a transparent dialogue. We want to share the data and make sure everybody can see the data. Uh, Sometimes the numbers are so small that you run the risk of identifying who these individuals are and sharing information that is going to be a threat to their privacy. So the goal for NIH, at least, is over time that we increase the numbers. And by increasing diversity proper, you also increase and change the dialogue. And you also have a ripple effect of changing the culture. Mm-hmm. But none of it works if there aren't mentor programs in place and there aren't sponsor uh, sponsors available for the staff. Mm-hmm. And and if we don't evaluate and track whether what we're doing is actually going to work. So complex problems require complex answers. So um, that's just an example of what our approach is uh, for one tiny piece mm-hmm. of this conversation at NIH. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Matthias, what do you, what do you see from your research, and in, in particularly in Europe, um, as far as interventions? Do you, do you see this type of thing helping? Do you see any other programs at work?
3: Well, well, I think actually uh, some of the uh, the best research on this has been carried out um, in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, Sociologists uh, Alex Caleb and Frank Dobbin have been focusing on kind of what, what diversity interventions work and what's, uh, what, what interventions work less well. And, 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 and the knowledge there is based on uh, longitudinal studies of more than 800 companies in the US. Mm. And, and an interesting point, just to complicate this a little bit, uh, that, th- that they find there is that uh, um, organizations should be very careful about forcing managers to participate in, for instance, bias training. Because that can lead to backlash, that can lead to at least a very modest effect and sometimes negative effects. Mm. And basically they argue that's because uh, managers they don't like to be told what to do, they don't like to be told that they're wrong. Uh, Whereas if you kind of work And that may sound easier than it is, but to kind of motivate these people to voluntarily engage in in activities related to recruiting underrepresented groups, to train underrepresented groups and so on, that's a more efficient way of Mm -hmm. doing that. And also to relate to your point, Um, about monitoring this. Another important point that they find in their studies on this is that one of the most efficient ways to kind of get this started is to establish diversity committees that continuously monitor and uh, examine developments in in the the representation of different groups, in the hiring practices and so on. So this kind of transparency and accountability Mm -hmm. is is an important starting point for this. Mm -hmm. Another important point I think that we need to mention in this discussion relates to the question of who's responsible for carrying out the work related to promoting diversity Mm -hmm. and inclusion in scientific organizations. Mm -hmm. And here I want to point to a a recent paper published in Nature Ecology, where uh, the researchers found that that kind of responsibility, at least at the department level, typically pertains to underrepresented groups. So they do most of this work. And I think that is paradoxical for at least two reasons. First of all, um, if we think about this, this type of work is is some sort of activity that's extremely important, but is sometimes moved from other types of activities. Mm -hmm. We need to do research to survive in this system. And if it's taken from research time, it can have negative effects. The other, uh, I think, important point is to to think about um, the paradox of asking, underrepresented groups to be primarily responsible for changing their organizations. We cannot change organizations on these matters if we don't involve the majority, if we don't Mm -hmm. involve white men and institutionalize responsibilities, incentivize responsibilities, broaden them out so it's a more general issue. I think that's extremely important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. May, it's a great may point. I
1: piggyback yeah. on something you said, Matthias, yeah. which is um, really appreciate you bringing up this kind of person environment transaction about who is responsible for change as well as the tax for the folk who are typically underrepresented to help change their organization. Mm -hmm. And I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago regarding the um, ways that this study found that diversity trainings, in this case bias trainings, can have a backlash, uh, especially when it's coerced or when it's required. And one of the things I want to bring up that I think is really critical for us to delve into is that when we talk about diversity issues and equity and inclusion, this is not a monolith. Like, everyone is not starting at the same place, mindset-wise, when we have these interventions. And so one of the things we found in the studies that myself and Christopher and Janet Branshaw, colleagues I've been privileged to work with, have been finding is that we have different mindsets about diversity, and we've been specifically focusing sp- uh, within the scientific community, and that has implications for what our interventions should do and what they should address because we typically have a one size fits all, which is awareness raising. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that there are a couple of different mindsets around diversity that our STEM colleagues had. Mm -hmm. One is kind of a don't know. I just have no idea about diversity because I just do science. I just do real research. I don't have Mm -hmm. anything to do with diversity. People like Angela do that. Social scientists (laughs) do that. So a don't know mindset. There's a, uh, so unawareness, other ones are really disbelief that these things are irrelevant to the doing of science. And another group that we found in this research um, was a fear-based mindset. If I do these things i 'm going to make a mistake I 'll be misunderstood I'll be misperceived as racist. What if I ask Angela what's it like to be the only black female in this training program? It wasn't important to her? now she 's going to think that this is the only way I see her mm. and so that's important as we think about there is not a one-size-fits-all set of interventions but I think this is an important piece but we have the opportunities through national efforts institutionalized like the National Research Mentoring Network um, as well as Howard Hughes Medical Institute is doing some uh, amazing uh, experiments around these uh, training interventions for mentors is to think about different types of interventions Mm -hmm. for different types of mindsets around diversity and inclusion.
4: I was just
2: going to briefly say something that um, Mm -hmm. is related to what Mattia said about sort of involving um, white men or groups that are not underrepresented. um, Where I'm heartened by research by Sepna Shirian in terms of um, what she finds and her colleagues that you know if you as long you can increase women's sense of belonging in STEM. By having female role models and female instructors, and that's been known for a very long time, and that could increase retention in STEM, which is really important in their engagement. But also, if you have counter stereotypical um, men who are also instructors or signals in the environment, or um, I'm sure you're familiar with this kind of work, but you know, signals in the environment are even posters on the wall that really are kind of go against the sort of masculine stere- uh, stereotype about mm-hmm. science and STEM fields. Um, you actually can get women to feel a sense of belonging. So all that's to say, social psychological mm-hmm. research supports the idea certainly that men and in, in groups can certainly, even if you aren't of that underrepresented group, you can still take on some of the, there's th- still things you can do mm-hmm. in an instructor, mm-hmm. professor role or in some, you know, you have um, control over your STEM department to do things to increase retention and, and the sense of belonging of underrepresented groups. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that the GOBTQ community has been very successful at bringing in allies mm. who are not necessarily part of that group, but want to make the, the change. So I think, to Matthias's point, I think if you can bring in the majority, uh, I, I sense that you will have far more success. Uh, Charlene?
4: I, I just wanted to also add that Angela's piece about it depends on who the audience is and who, who is perceiving the issues around inequity and diversity, In our case at NIH, our audience is scientists, Mm. some of the most brilliant scientists in the country. So we use science to educate them about implicit bias. John, you would be a wonderful part of our roadshow. We we try to make sure that we present it in a way that is in their lingo or or language. Mm. And uh, that is sometimes safer than sort of um, other approaches. And then we we also like the IAT, the implicit attitude test, because it gives a nice robust measure um, and an experiential, you know. Taking a test raises your awareness in terms of just experiencing the the test itself and Mm -hmm. then the score and then the feedback. Mm -hmm. Now we know the IAT um, attitude change is short term, Mm and it's not long term. We recognize we might have to do booster shots of those and repetition but we're we're trying to make it a sort of a standardized approach, the implicit bias education. We're thinking about making e-learning tools. We have an increased demand for it. The more people who take it, the more people who want it. And We don't even have the capacity to meet the demand. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's an an authentic evolution happening and a genuine interest, and there are some people who are more receptive than others, but I just wanted to comment on, you know, with scientists, use science Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as much as possible, and then create a safe environment to share personal anecdotes. And, you know, it's no guarantee that it'll create complete change instantly, But I would say, over the past four years, we are having an impact, and we are increasing our numbers of scientists in the intramural research program. Mm -hmm.
1: Great.
0: Actually, Angela, I wanted to come to you on on that point. You you told us a great story um, uh, before the webinar about some of the work that you've done with some scientists about giving them a question, but then taking away some of their possible answers. Um, So, you know, forcing them to think differently about things, Could you you talk about that?
1: Absolutely, and I want to acknowledge uh, David Asai and and Cliff Poudry who've been thinking about these issues as well through Howard Hughes Medical (coughs) Institute. They actually wrote a paper last year called Questioning Assumptions which gets at this point that Mm -hmm. many times we start to think about why do we have underrepresentation? Why are some students um, um, in a shorter time period completing their degree than others, why are some students getting out of their PhD programs or even uh, earlier degree programs with more publications, more presentations. And so one of the experiments that we're partnering with uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute to conduct is looking at um, some colleagues who are HHMI investigators who are mentoring pre-doctoral students who are all from underrepresented racial ethnic groups in the sciences. And we spend about a year with them training and having these conversations that Charlene just described sharing the science, creating opportunities for people to really interrogate a lot of taken for granted assumptions like mm-hmm. underrepresentation just happens because the cream rises to the top. The students who'll make mm-hmm. it, they, they'll be there and they'll be successful and they don't need a magical mentor because they have the, the goods already. Um, there's nothing I really need to do except shepherd them through this wonderful training experience. So we push on that. And so mm-hmm. this uh, title, this article by David Assain Cleopuge really gets at that question assumption so we ask them to think about why there might be disparities in their students progress performance and success in their programs and we take a couple of options off the table in terms of explanatory reasons like you can't use they were like differentially motivated or differentially uh, intellectually able and so from there there's an opportunity to really start thinking about the systems that create success mm-hmm. that student success, training success, professional success Happens in a context, not in a vacuum, and so in this complex exchange between uh, talent development with with trainers like faculty mentors and students, there are many things going on. It was amazing to see the number of ideas and insights that mm-hmm. our colleagues came up with. Of well, gee, maybe I'm mentoring that person differently. Maybe I haven't asked Angela as much as I've asked John to go present the abstract on behalf of our lab, or maybe I'm not suggesting that. Um, Charlene applies for a postdoc award like an F32 from NIH, but I'm asking Matthias to do that. So we start to have a little bit more consciousness of these things that are happening where that we see the outcome, which is differential progress, performance, mm-hmm. and persistence, um, actually are created through these transactions in the mentoring relationship. Well, I shouldn't say mm-hmm. solely, <laughs> but they, they happen in terms of that context of the relationship as well as other factors. Mm-hmm.
4: One one last piece, building on that, I, I wanted to just mention um, the intervention of hand washing, you know, to prevent disease. Everyone who started washing their hands was not sold on all of the his, you know, the medical research, the underpinnings, literature reviews about why we wash our hands. Right? There was a policy and sort of education campaign to have people wash their hands. Well. Analogously, at NIH, we went and instituted a program that is our Distinguished Scholars Program, which is a robust and bold program where we provided resources financially to the intramural scientific uh, offices and directors to recruit people who were committed to um, diversity and who are going or are now there 13 the goal is to have 15 each year over a number of years to give the resources to just bring them in that's the hand washing like mm-hmm. we didn't wait until everybody bought it we didn't do over and over the same lessons we didn't survey everybody to make sure they were 100% on board we had a robust idea we discussed it with leadership it it took a while and it evolved but now we have 13 members in our first cohort, we've selected the next 15 in the next cohort, and at the end of about, I guess, five years, you can do the math, we will have changed the institutional culture Mm -hmm. because we have a cohort of scientists who actually represent and are committed to scientific workforce diversity and who in and of themselves are changing the culture. Mm -hmm. And then in order to keep them here and retain them, we are changing by having mentoring programs, having sponsorship ensuring success so sometimes that's my hand-washing analog you just mm-hmm. you just have you to just it. do it right. you know jump out of the plane pull the parachute huh. and and yeah. go for the landing and to me that's another example of of an institutional innovation intervention it doesn't does it in, in does it mitigate implicit bias maybe not directly but does it have an institutional change where people are exposed to these Sci- there are myths that they don't exist. Mm-hmm. That you know, there just aren't any fill-in-the-blank mm-hmm. uh, specialists out there for us to yeah. recruit who are qualified.
2: Yeah, just want to piggyback on one thing you said, and then also earlier about how um, how important it is that, like, for an intervention like that to work. I mean, scientists need to be open to the idea of talking about diversity, and you were talking about that, and open to thinking about this, which you know, in in thinking about, I think that has certainly grown and I think there's probably variability as I know we've talked about um, with across different STEM fields where it's sort of like in psychology and neuroscience might be very different than other areas of life sciences or engineering in terms of, but I think with, you know, gender and race it is a growing understanding, but this is something that I know in terms of you know, conceptualizing even LGBTQ identity or or, or sexual and gender minorities as um, a STEM diversity issue requires, kind of getting your head around thinking mm-hmm. about how this is a diversity issue, and that it's okay to talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's okay to even just very basics in terms of having an LGBTQ networking event at a conference. Some scientists in that conference are opposed to that because they think it shouldn't even be talked about, or it has no place in science and engineering. And I think, you know, when you look at the data, the Um, without sort of official data that exists but the data, the few studies that do exist, um, what you see is that you know STEM versus non-STEM, things are worse in STEM and it might be what some have argued uh, you know might be going on is the kind of objectivist impersonal nature that is part of the philosophy of science sort of that is getting in the way of people thinking you know sex orientation gender identity have no place in science and engineering and I think probably The same to some extent is going on with also talking about other basic identities like gender and race and the first step is just getting people to even be willing to think about diversity and not seeing it as antithetical to the scientific project Mm -hmm. which i think for some because this this seminar is about other kinds of identities too i think for sex orientation gender identity probably disability probably for other things that are less talked about in stem diversity discussions it's difficult to just get the conversation moving and to enable the success of those kinds of things. So I think, just wanted to highlight that because I mm-hmm. think it's definitely playing a role um, in, in creating change.
0: Mm-hmm. Great, so the the next thing I, I wanted to touch on is, um, and and I, I think you, you actually talked to this point, John, is um, managing individuals or groups who are resistant to embracing diversity. Um, I get the sense, I think, we can probably say that most people want to do the right thing most of the time. Um, So it seems like maybe it's um, getting a shift in perception or getting them to see things slightly differently, which I think comes back to what you were talking about, uh, Angela, um, with this question to to senior PIs um, about what might be causing bias. So um, if you have any thoughts, Matthias, maybe we can start with you on, on, you know, if you have a a group or an individual who's really Mm. resistant to some type of bias, how do you approach that?
3: um I, I want to make i think angela would be better at <laughs> answering it but i want to make an important point here which is about a more like like direct general point in terms of how to lead diverse teams which is the extreme importance of kind of contributing to promote the uh, the, the positive beliefs uh, among among the team members that diversity can be beneficial and let me give mm-hmm. you an ex- example of that a uh, dutch group of researchers had uh, diverse, gender diverse teams, and they informed them of the benefits of um, gender diversity uh, mm-hmm. for problem solving and made them believe this. And th- these groups of believe, uh, that would uh, believe that gender diversity was positive performed far better on a problem-solving test than a similar group, other similar groups of gender diverse people that were informed that the opposite, hmm. that homogeneity is good. And I know this is a very simplified way of, of saying it, but the openness to diversity, the belief that it can be uh, beneficial, it is, is extremely important and is an important basic kind of premise for making uh, diversity work in scientific contexts mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. So can I so give
1: two quick examples, yes. too, in terms of helping folk mm-hmm. who are resistant to, or perhaps not yet convinced, mm-hmm. <laughs> around the value of diversity? One is that we know from um, much of the work that Joe Handelsman led about 15 years ago with the entering mentoring training that started specifically to build the capacity of mentors to be better, and most of them were saying, this is important, so they weren't even talking about diversity specifically, but you can do something to be a better mentor. Is that they use the impact of positive peer pressure. So, seeing other people who went through training have been convinced now, given the example you just gave, Matias, that diversity matters and you can do better as a team, actually then started to say, well, maybe I should go on board too. The other thing is encouraging people um, to be more uh, reflective on their own self as a cultural being. I found that many of our mm-hmm. colleagues are just not willing to have these conversations because they are disconnected from their own cultural identities. And so a lot of the work that's needed is just to help people understand, you are a cultural being, just because I have this phenotype doesn't mean I'm the only one who has culture. Yeah,
0: interesting, great. So just, I, I just wanted to make a point to what Matthias was saying. So really the cultural messaging around diversity seems to be important. Um.
3: Yeah yeah ex- extremely important it is the challenge is how to do it but i think uh, uh, making people aware of the benefits and 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 raising these issues again and again to talk about this is something that can have positive um, implications o- in our work if we get along in the right way and think about our differences mm-hmm. and are, and are open to people bringing different um, bringing and showing their identity at work, uh, and allowing for different perspectives to be raised in group discussions, even when they challenge mm-hmm. the the status quo. So I think especially people in the majority need to be good at thinking about th- this and that uh, we should allow space for everyone to voice their opinion and to show who they are when they w- in, in research groups and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Charlene, briefly, we very we're almost briefly. Out of time. Well, <laughs> we
4: have intrinsic mo- motivation and we have mm-hmm. extrinsic motivation. We have a lot of science and research around what motivates us, right? Mm-hmm. And I just would say that sometimes uh, some people move along that, that motivational continuum when they want to win or do well or solve problems or be competitive or have a lab that does the best research and gets yeah. an award. Um, if they want these external things to get them, they must have a diverse Group of people working on it, and this has been repeatedly demonstrated in Silicon Valley, in economic studies, and in M- Matthias's world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you want to win, if you have, it could be a capitalistic motivation. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, um, it may not all be altruism. It may be, you know, external factors. Mm-hmm. I want to succeed. I want. It may not be. I want to make the world a better place. It depends on the individual, right. but you can tell them with a lot of de- evidence that um, if you want to achieve these gains and these goals, mm-hmm. and successfully cure medical conditions or win the prize for your lab's research, mm-hmm. you're going to need to have a diverse team. Otherwise, you will not win.
0: Right. <laughs> a great point.
2: Can I make a quick John? comment, but sure. the. <clears throat> I think too the the. Some people that are resistant to diversity efforts have the idea that by including individuals, you're compromising performance or you're compromising mm-hmm. talent. And I think it's really not borne out in all the analyses that exist. In terms of, I know, you know, there was some um, high-profile studies last year, two thousand eighteen, but all the analyses where they look at you know millions of scientific papers and. and as with all the caveats that the impact factor of a journal you know should have but trying to measure whether it's impact factor the number of publications of different scientific article, or sorry the number of citations that a scientific article receives and, and um, papers that are estimated to have higher number or uh, greater racial diversity in its authorship um, have more public get more citations and have higher impact so it's correlational so it's limited to what's going on but it's these really large samples of studies and I think, you know that that in terms of that's consistent with so much other behavioral science research on the benefits of diversity in terms of for organizations, for corporations, for in terms of gender diversity, racial diversity, geographic diversity, political diversity, etc. So I think it's not borne out in the data in the sense that there's some kind of compromise going on. If anything mm-hmm. it seems that performance is increased including in the scientific domain so it seemed that you know, it, it's it, there are a lot of benefits, as you said, and, and um, but I think unfortunately, resistance to diversity efforts can sometimes it, it's seen as that you're compromising performance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that doesn't seem to be the case.
4: And we debunk the myth that there aren't uh, qualified diverse teams or members out there right. by finding them, finding and identifying highly qualified and specialized candidates who mm-hmm. are diverse. Right and sharing those lists of names with people mm-hmm. in NIH.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. So, well, I hope that we've helped people step outside their box, uh, even for a moment, and uh, recognize that it's, it's a good thing to do, as well, and can help them. So uh, we are, unfortunately, uh, out of time for today's webinar. So a heartfelt thanks uh, to today's panel for the fascinating discussion, uh, Dr. Angela byers winston Dr. John Freeman, Dr. Matthias Nielsen, and Dr. Charlene Lafave. Uh, Sorry, the foe. Uh, Again, thank you so much to our panel for being here. It's really been fantastic. Uh, And uh, thank you to Foundation Ibsen for their kind sponsorship of today's discussion. Goodbye. (laughs)